0: Hello and welcome to the show and an episode where we ask, why is onboarding for product managers so bad? Speaking of onboarding, well, this is awkward, but this episode is completely coincidentally sponsored by tonight's guest's company, Product People. But hear me out. If you're a company founder or product leader who needs to get a product management team up and running quickly or cover parental leave, check out the aforementioned Product People. They've got a thriving community and 40 in-house product managers, product ops pros and product leaders. They onboard fast, align teams and deliver outcomes. You can check out one night in product.com slash product people to book a free intro chat and quote code OKIP to get a five percent discount. That's one night in product.com slash product people. Listen to this episode and check the show notes for more details. So, yeah, speaking about this episode, if you want to find out some of the different ways that product manager onboarding can go wrong, why it's so difficult, and how you might give yourself a better chance of success, keep listening to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Mirella Mus. Mirella's a long-time product manager, product leader, mentor, coach, advisor, and company founder who says she hates the words digital transformation and dealing with high-maintenance people, so I'm concentrating very hard on being low-maintenance and simple in this interview. Speaking of simplicity, Mirella describes herself as a minimalist with a minimalist house and a minimalist wardrobe, and she's also trying to minimize the pain of product management for companies needing interim product people with her own company, the aptly named Product People. Hi Mirella, how are you doing?
1: Great, and thank you for having me.
0: No problem, it is good to have you here. So, first things first, you are the founder of Product People. So, what problem does your company solve for the world?
1: Our mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. We do this with two of our pillars. One, uh, spreading knowledge generously through one of the largest product management communities in Europe, where we host free knowledge sharing events every week and similar content. And the way we make money is to interim in product management roles or sometimes product coaching through our forty in-house product management consultants.
0: So that's an interesting with the two pillars. Like you've got the community side, you've got the money-making side. Like is the money-making side a necessary evil to keep the community going, or is the community something that supports the money-making side? Like which way around does that go?
1: Both tie into our mission. The community supports hiring very good PMs. So Most of the senior people don't necessarily search out these communities, especially people leadership, because the problems they deal with are already going further and further away from day-to-day product management. But with the talks we do, let's say, around experimentation or discovery and so on, we attract very good PMs because self-actualizing people tend to seek this content. And so far, six of our employees have discovered our content in some shape or form first, and then product people, and the job listings. So to that extent, um, it's very successful. And I think for our missions at Clients, it also gives us some credibility because we're not just there to milk every euro, but we're also (laughs) interested to make the space better. Or pound. Or pound for for the British.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's too soon to start talking about euros over here. The pain still hurts. (laughs) But that's really interesting, this idea that it almost gives you like a production line of Ready and willing and interested, new people that could potentially come and work for you in the future. So, do you see that number going up in the future, or do you think that's going to be a, a low-level thing that just sort of comes along the side of your other hiring efforts?
1: It depends on the market. So, I think now we're seeing way more applicants than before, due to the VC-funded businesses restricting hiring or pausing it. Yeah. But I, I would see it as a constant, and and also we've gotten. People who are interested to get into product management as their first-time role also interested to apply because we had quite a few successful cases where people who did um, an associate role with us then ended up as product managers within our company or then somewhere else where they left to pursue a domain they were interested in, like, for example, working on sustainability or gaming.
0: That's interesting, the associate product manager thing. I mean, obviously, that's a thing that a lot of companies are doing. I've just heard that Miro have started one up, for example. I think it's a really great way to get people into the trade. But does that collide a little bit with your kind of we onboard fast and deliver value quickly mission? Because of course, more junior people that are just getting into the trade are going to need a lot more support and and help and coaching and mentoring to be effective. So do those people kind of fly co-pilot with the more experienced PMs, or do you have some other model to get them up to speed?
1: Yes, that, that, that's one of the the models. So the way we serve our clients is what we call the trio. But I know this; it sometimes collides with Teresa Torres' <laughs> definition of maybe call it a thread. There you go. And what we would have is the the client facing product manager. That uh, client facing product manager is supported by an associate PM for tactical tasks and also growing into the role as they join along and then they are supervised and mentored by either a group product manager or a senior product manager depending on the complexity of the mission so this is way even if the client is just charged for the pm role they get a lot more value and stability through this makeup and that also helps us if someone leaves the company or takes a longer vacation or a sabbatical or all, all, all the things can happen that yeah when we're running the people business, as I've learned. So this provided a lot of stability and a better quality for us because just the supervision factor is coming from people who've seen a lot of engagements span out at a lot of clients and have a baseline expectation of what we should do. So we we hope with that to also get our people to operate on the next level, but also catch underperformance before this is visible at clients. And it's also harder for us than, let's say, regular management consultancies that, just get people out of college, right? And they just get them to polish some decks because <laughs> those are not embedded in the day-to-day of the client. So we tried also with people out of college and it didn't work as well because you need some life experience to make this type of decisions. But some people who had good judgment and life experience in some areas that could be mapped into the PM role did quite well. And in very fortunate cases, we had the associate even take over the engagement at some point or have that engagement branch out into two because the client noticed the person and requested them to help somewhere else around the company.
0: There you go. So what is then a typical length? Because I mean, you're saying that you're doing a lot of interim roles and kind of almost filling in for people when it's parental leave or filling in for people when they're having some trouble hiring and they need to get something up and running sooner than they can get a good person in. So that tends to suppose that the PMs that you have are going in and their engagements are time-limited. So like, what is an average time that you would put a PM or a product leader into a position?
1: Four to five months. So usually we we recommend starting at three if people don't know when they're going to hire. For parental covers, they already have more visibility of how big the gap is going to be, and those are sometimes uh, six months. But we had cases also where we Left the parental leave sooner because there was someone else coming from another parental leave and something restructuring, <laughs> and then we handed over to a new rejoiner from the client. So, four to five months. But of course, we've had also 12, or we've had also cases where the client managed to hire someone after two months. So, then we needed to offboard sooner after we onboarded that person.
0: So, what's the longest off the top of your head?
1: It depends how, we, how we're counting. So, what we would count as a mission is a maternity cover on a specific product. But the relationship with these clients, especially at the ideal customer profile, lasts for years and years because there's this parental cover, then there's someone leaving, then there's someone that's now sick and can work only part-time. And all of these cases, once we have a good relationship with a client and and they're happy with us and also the rest of the organization becomes aware of what we do, there, there are always these short bits of covers that we can do here and there and everywhere so so those so far we've been lucky to have a lot of clients either with continuous types of engagements or with some gaps and then coming back again so for that the the second example is probably 2 point5 years or similar as we also track what's what's our retention rate and retention rate for us it's clients who engage us despite having some gaps here and there right because you can't always predict what, what is going to happen. Yeah, And then the the separate missions are the ones we talked about on an average of four to five months. It's
0: funny, it reminds me of a story that I heard from a friend once who'd basically been a contractor for a big company for something like 15 years or something like that. And they eventually realized and they had to get rid of him because they just realized that they've been paying a contractor, basically a full-time job, permanent job for so long. Uh, but then obviously in the UK, you've got all these pesky tax laws that are coming to try and stop that sort of thing. I don't know what it's like over there.
1: Germany already has that. So this is also one of the benefits we offer to clients because Germany has been looking, uh, was already quite a lot of employee protection laws because, you know, if you're a contractor, then you're quite exposed whenever there's some sort of, there's no downside protection, your contract can be cut off. Whereas in Germany, for example, if you want to wind down the contract of an existing employee, then you need to pay the, severance and then depending on the length of the employment you'll have another month for each year this employee has been at and in some cases you have more i say more protection against this happening and this is something we also know on the on the uk side that sometimes companies call these contractor roles but what they're actually looking for is a disguised employee because they didn't <laughs> want to work with us as an agency they were like no no, no we just want one person and And it's like, okay, but then you actually want an employee, but to give them a short-term contract, which it's understandable. But in, in Germany, that would be a relatively high liability because if the government then comes back and reclassifies this person, then you'd end up paying more as a company as you need to pay to back pay all the social security and all the, all the taxation as you'd have had for an FTE or even be required to hire them on a permanent contract, which of course many corporates don't, don't want. So then there are <laughs> companies like us who have the employees on the payroll, which offers protection. And then there's also, let's say, a bit less protection from marketplaces where they pass freelancers through them on an invoice. And then the, this marketplace takes a bit more of the liability.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. You've got it all sorted out. But you're a product person yourself. You've done a bunch of product roles before you set this up a few years back. So are you still yourself doing day-to-day product stuff, going into companies yourself through product people, or have you managed to step back and concentrate on the company and, and running it?
1: I, I have tried, but I keep coming back and forth. So, so on, <laughs> on one hand…
0: You love it too much, right?
1: Not necessarily that. but just We, we see that the types of engagements we're getting or the level of sophistication increases. So if we're talking, let's say, with the CPO of one of the largest taxi apps in Germany, so it's like similar to Uber… I can't send a salesperson, a salesperson or um, a mid-level PM have these conversations because they, they, they can be looking at various things to do. But if just if it's just an interim PM role, then of course I can just send our mid-level or, or senior PM handle it. So part of my engagement has been also with structuring how we're working with these clients, understanding their problem, which to some degree ends up being people and product work. And in other cases, I also had to step in for either a group PM or a VP of product for coaching engagements, because if you want to coach a head of product or so on, you can send potentially one of our senior PMs if they have experience in that area or myself. And then this ended up being a question of vacations and availability. And we really want people to take their vacations. So I had to step in a few times with either this coaching or structuring how we're helping a larger and more complex company.
0: Well, there you go. You can't escape.
1: <laughs> but but I think to some degree, I would still, let's say, even if I would have all the structures in place, uh, at least the advice I've got from some people is to still understand how the day-to-day works or yep. be engaged with this because otherwise you would end up with some disconnect and then we sell something to some clients that's completely uh, divorced from reality. We, we should then see all of these PMs complaining about the sales team. (laughs) All right. So you, you don't want to be very far out from this, especially as the space is evolving so quickly and best practices of like last year are not so trendy anymore or people are (laughs) dumping OKRs for narrative commitment tasks or, you know, like all of these things. Potential clients would ask me about that and I need to be. Able to give an educated answer that's not superficial <laughs> or or just you know what I
0: mean. I do know what you mean. And just for the record, I don't think product people need any excuse to complain about salespeople. So that circle will keep going. But again, you're a product person, and you had those roles before this, and you're still doing it day to day as and when the need comes up. And a lot of product people start companies. You know, they go and work for a product somewhere else, and then they have a great idea, and they go out and they create a SaaS company, and they go and try and build a product of your own. Now, obviously, you can say that product people is a product in itself, and the people are your product, and that's, and obviously, the community is a product as well. But why was it that you decided to create a company like this and start to effectively sell consultancy services rather than going out and starting a SaaS company and trying to make the big bucks?
1: To some degree, I admire the people who go out of the business school and create SaaS for construction companies. I was like, how how can you get excited about that? <laughs> I mean, it's it's cool that you do it, and and there's a lot of money in uh, getting the construction industry to suck uh, a little less and, and be a little less old school. Or for example, logistics, right? Like some some of the unicorns here are are just handling logistics because that's also like a very old business who hasn't caught up with the times too much, or and, and there are a lot of efficiencies to be gained. Yeah, but I wasn't excited about doing these sort of things, and one. On one part, when I was hanging out and trying to understand what I want to do, I kept getting requested to advise or support on product. And then some of these uh, engagements came through third parties, usually body shops or marketplaces. And what I saw there is that the, the shops are more interested in selling the developers. yeah, Because PM there is more of the nine out of 10 people you sell. So it's sometimes... 80 to 90% of the revenue you make through uh, Devs, Scrum Master, QA, DevOps, anything and anything you can stash in there. I think in an early stage where more is more and you just need to build some stuff, it's fine. But even there, there was a lot of waste and it felt like no one really cared on how to do this faster and simpler for the client if it's worth doing at all. So I understood the need of having... Product as a separate function. You know, a lot of people say that product should be in house, and I agree with this. Or at least it should be aligned with with the company building it. And then on the other hand, you have the sometimes very good strategic work, or sometimes you know it it can be interpreted because when the strategy is never bad, is how you execute it.
0: <laughs>
1: and and then there's this gap between the big consulting companies who come up with, hey, we should target this market, and and this is the plan. And then everything gets shipped over as a deck to these dev shops, which maybe sometimes they also just do the best they can. But in this model, it's unlikely that a PM can actually come up and say, no, this is bullshit. We should do something else or we, we shouldn't scope it down completely. And what I sometimes sense or, or saw in profiles, they also have a bit of trouble hiring good people. And so the, the big brand consultancies don't have the trouble because people also go there for the brand. and just the experience they're going to see, but in the other cases, not. So I looked at what can be in the middle that's aligned with the customer and what kind of companies would benefit from this. And this is what we do. We're mixed, strategic, and operational, but sometimes a bit more operational depending on the level at which we're operating. And then our ideal customer profiles is digital-first companies from Series A plus to publicly listed because those understand the more sophisticated product management practices are not going to be super excited if one of these body leasing companies renames a business analyst into a product owner or product manager (laughs) or whatever they had is delivery managers. And they're going to look at people who can create business value or or create certain scope, but also decommission and be very thorough about what they're prioritizing and why they're prioritizing that, not just filling a backlog. Although some some clients also come to us and say, yeah, I I just need tickets for the PM. Okay. But what else else is success here? Because, Because there's less we can do.
0: Yeah, no, success has many different shapes and sizes. But you talk a lot about how product people gets people in place onboarded fast. It's a big part of your value proposition. The fact that you can kind of just spin stuff up as quickly as possible and start delivering whatever type of success or value that people actually want to have delivered. Now, this obviously implies that other people can't do that. Now, we've obviously all had at least one job where the onboarding was kind of crappy. So given that you're really keen to sort onboarding out, and you've, I know you've given talks on onboarding and making it better as well, I wondered what was the worst experience that you had being onboarded as a product manager, or oh, indeed any role, but let's fix on product management now. Like The, the worst landing that you ever had as a, as a product manager.
1: It turned out well, but but it was relatively scary when it happened. So there was this this client that wanted to start ASAP, and generally we're believing this less and less because ASAP for another client meant it took them four months to sign the contract. Huh. Uh, so this this client actually signs ASAP, and then basically next week I needed to start, so I was still client facing back then. Then I'm ready on the day and, and had sent them some requests for accounts, but I don't get any accounts, and at some point I pinged more people and get the accounts midday. Then my whole onboarding call with someone is, hey, dear, this is all the initiatives there and, and some of the tooling have funky names. I, I won't mention them because then people listening to the podcast <laughs> and understand, like potentially which company it is. But let's say there's like Project uh, Bubblegum and, and, and Project Chocolate and, and, and so on. So I, I kind of get these names and then someone invites me to some meetings and says, hey, I'm going to invite you here. I'm going to decline these meetings. There you go. And 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 then uh there's also I get thrown into maybe two or three slack channels and then there's also a new C level higher uh, for product and a bunch of things. So, so like there's all of this fragmented information. Then I was supposed to be the one person seeding one whole department there and truly need to do parts. And then start getting tagged by people who were doing market expansion. Hey, is this live? Hey, is this um, planned? Hey, is this something? And I couldn't see necessarily how the app looks in every geography hmm. and what are the feature toggles and when when that that comes in. So I had to do also a lot of forensic work to understand, okay, what's there, what's planned? Part of these upcoming things weren't in my, my area. I, I was handling... Facilitating that this company expands to new markets and for expanding in new markets, you need certain compliance or some market-specific capabilities. And this is what we're doing, but they were overlapping with the client, with p um, 2 c facing app, with internal tooling and everything and anything in between. Um, so it was a lot to piece together from basically there was no structure of how things were were done, there there was no clear backlog of like what was there, what was promised, what's coming, what importance is this. And then all of a sudden there comes a large market expansion that needs to overhaul the whole product and everything and anything. And then I get thrown into even more things there. (laughs) It it all turned out quite well and, and the client won that. And I think what saved me there is that I wasn't very attached to the product because the people who've been building it for a while were a bit resentful that now we're doing, we're building things just top down, just because we want to get into this market. And some of the asks weren't very customer friendly, because they were asked by regulators. And as you can imagine, (laughs) there were also sometimes silly asks that we needed to scope down and position in a way that annoyed the user the least, but still got <laughs> us the checkbox uh, that, that we can go there. And I think that made it a bit difficult from, hey, you're just thrown into these things. The company was also in hyper growth, so no one had time for, for anything. Everyone's department and role changed as we progressed from one week to the other, or kind of every two weeks. There were also a lot of new people on board who were taking out slippers of responsibility. So I, I also stayed sane with just starting to organize people on a few Slack channels and a few Notion pages and then starting to have more canned answers whenever there was like every week there were like three new people asking me the same thing
0: and then <laughs> aligning with leadership
1: of what of these 50 things that everyone says they're super important should we do? I mean, the, the stuff that I did is quite obvious in hindsight and it wasn't anything anything out of the ordinary. Uh, probably. What helped is that the culture of the company was very fault tolerant in a way that mistakes were punished and and people were very friendly and responsive. So, so that really helped with all this mess. Where hmm. uh, by comparison, I had a more structured onboarding at a client that was very political and rigid and top down, and there I felt I became less effective than I would have wanted to because whenever you tried something that wasn't on exactly the path they had defined, they They were a bit apprehensive about it and a bit blamey. They were always this second guessing while you're in a call with someone, what actually means. Whereas with this other company, despite all the chaotic setup and the the lack of clear priorities or responsibilities, people were willing to make it work. And and I think that that is an underrated (laughs) quality of a company. Because if I would compare on paper, the political company, did way better but ended up being less effective because everyone, including us as contractors, was were at some point a bit apprehensive into getting some into some topics because they're like, well with this I'm going to end up with five hundred meetings. I already have fifteen hours of meetings at this client. And then I'm not super sure that it's going to get anywhere and we have no visibility. So like how, how do we even continue to make an impact with all, all of these constraints and kind of lack of helpfulness? I hope this gives an an idea because on on one hand that chaotic experience would be probably bad for a junior person that they, that they would get overwhelmed or someone doesn't have the mental structure, but on one hand also a very rigid setup where people don't feel allowed to to make any comments or changes is not that great despite the onboarding looking relatively structured
0: yep, so it's very much a mixture of a bunch of different factors, but what you just described. Obviously, fairly chaotic, lots of stuff going on, lots of different ideas about priorities, lots of different initiatives going on at the same time. That sounds like a company problem, like something that would probably impact the onboarding of just about anyone that was starting at that company in any role. So do you think that in some cases, companies are just generally rubbish at onboarding and it's just not something that they know how to do? Or do you think that it's specifically bad for product managers coming into the organizations? And if it is, then why?
1: I think it's specifically bad for prior managers because they end up being the first ones hit with changes of scope or direction. Yep. The role is also not super well understood to some degree or for, for decision makers, everyone wants kind of something different out of the PMs. And if you don't have strong product leadership or someone who has done that before, then they won't see all of the facets of these, or why it's important to also support the PM into saying no, or having some sort of distance or authority over all these other departments that are trying to make you do various things for them. And I think this this is relatively hard. So I was talking with a, with a friend yesterday, and and this friend ended up at a company that had no process or structure for design. Everything is was all over the place. And what helped her, having been in a company that had that sorted out and had seen it work, was able to map and bring some of this into the newer role, despite not being um, nothing being there or or her being more by herself. So I think if this is the case for for PM. It depends what you have in house, because I've seen very good product leadership is able to give context and some lifelines despite the rest of the company being chaotic. <laughs> Whereas. If you lack that, then it depends who the PM reports to, and and then sometimes we get these things of like, yeah, or run the sprint with the devs, or we we need to go to market with X. Uh, but then it takes a while to understand that the go to market team is relatively also junior, and they don't know what to ask out of the PM or how to make this work. And then there's more work and responsibility f- falling on the PM on the go to market part. Yeah, but they also have the There are other responsibilities to deal with, let's say, if engineering is not mature enough and you need to spoon-feed the team with tickets. So so there are are a lot of things happening at the same time in in a company that can affect the weight carried by PMs. And also before the recording, we were talking about this company that you are also familiar with and that that where, where the PM role is also a little bit less developed. And that actually makes it harder even for a good PM to operate because you get the rest of the setup dragging you down and you're spending way more time in, in this. So probably w- one of the things that we've noticed in better companies, you see that it's well run when the PMs have less organizational topics to deal with. So sometimes you solve that to product yeah. ops. Sometimes, you know, the roles and responsibilities are quite clear and the team is mature enough. But but that is something I remember for one client that one of our seniors came and said I can't do half of the things we have on the playbook because the company is not chaotic they have a very structured and well defined onboarding the VP of product even told me to I don't need to give him daily updates of how my onboarding is doing or ping him with that so it's like all of the things that we do in in sometimes the less developed companies because people want a lot more updates or want a lot more let's say, visible activity from us, then they were like, no, you don't need to manage me up. I'm interested in these topics that we already discussed. Uh, We can discuss them in the pre-established meetings and in the rest, you know, you do you, (laughs) which was quite a, uh, and I'm mentioning because it's quite a big contrast compared to most of these other companies that we worked at. And and another one that would get a great shout out for me is Lucy McGlin at Zalando, because she prepared a um, super cool onboarding deck for, not necessarily Zalando in general, because it's a huge company, but the business unit she was running. Yeah. Also highlighting the, a bit of the product complexity there, because it's such a huge company that sometimes PMs don't own full premises, which would be, let's say, the product detail page is called a premise. You own sections of those. So let's say a carousel that recommends clothing. So this for PMs coming from smaller companies where they're used that they own quite big chunks of the product, starting to own various things. And these business units have different North Star metrics. It's quite a lot to wrap your head around because now you have a lot of other PMs to align with, aside from all your other stakeholders, whenever you want to do something. And you also must know what their priorities are and read their documents of their upcoming initiatives whenever you want to do something to understand if there's a conflict, or if if this is aligned with what your unit wants to do, so that you can piggyback on that. So quite a lot of things to take in whenever you want to do the the smallest change, and that was quite memorable from my side as good way to onboard because there were a lot of documents to read, a lot of people to meet. Another cool thing they did it was schedule a meet and greets with the people. I it's about nine people. I I was about to, to interact with on, on the three main topics yep. set to work on. And that already gave us such a, such a good start because this would have been the things I would have hunted down in the first two weeks. And it was already saved with one deck and a few intros. And then I was like, okay, now I actually need to figure out how to make an impact and, <laughs> and help with the North Star metric because all the let's say, superficial but useful things were solved
0: by the client themselves yeah that's really interesting like what the company themselves can do as well because obviously they're all going to be in different states of disrepair or organization or chaos as you've kind of touched on but you also mentioned a playbook now does that suggest that there's some kind of product people checklist or document or almost like specification for what you need out of a company and what you're going to do in return to help your pms get up to speed as quickly as possible like does that document exist and are there any nuggets from that that you can share with non-product people clients?
1: Sure. So, so one would be what we ask for the client before we join, including things like accounts and links and what, what are your upcoming priorities. One thing we learn is also to ask if there are some, not necessarily sensitive topics, but things that we shouldn't bring up or discuss because there there is some history around it.
0: <laughs> y- 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 Don't you know mention it that is. one project, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, or maybe people just got tired of workshops, which we could understand. Or did this thing from, oh, there was one one company that went from ADN to Stripe to ADN and and so on. So then whenever there's a discussion, you don't don't want to bring (laughs) that up or change tracking twice or a, a lot of these things so so that is also useful to for you to not make some proposals that that was already done and dusted and people will be like oh no this person again comes up with this uh, we're, we're so tired <laughs> of this discussion and then for for our people is mostly figuring out that we get this and also defining short term and mid term success with the client because we we look in increments of 3 months because that that's the usual part we look at showing in some way that were helpful so people don't have a buyer's remorse, and also because clients wait quite a lot to bring us in so they, they bring us in when in in some cases when things have already fallen apart for a while so mm-hmm. you need to work more that's why we like parental covers because there the person leaving is more motivated to do a good handover Yeah, and also announces in advance because you need to go to HR do the paperwork and, and so on so we're not brought in after the team has been neglected for two, three months because then the client realizes, okay, we cannot actually hire some or, or some people we had in the pipeline fell through. And now this restarts the process. And then this is where we get brought in, but we need to now catch up on all these months of neglect and confusion sometimes. So for for us, the other part is we look at people and problems. So which, which are the, the people that we would be working with our stakeholders, potential troublemakers, who are we reporting to or clarifying priorities in case, as usual, those get confusing. And then what are we supposed to do there from a success perspective? And sometimes they're also feature factory-like or so. But sometimes they're just, okay, for our next investment round, we need to launch this country or we need to have this capability up. Or sometimes the client says, yeah, the roadmap is agreed upon or everything is clear. And then that's usually a red flag for us because it means it's not or they (laughs) they haven't done enough discovery. But you need to, to start with that because I think sometimes the clients are afraid of that someone comes in and spends one month doing workshops in Miro. And you need to show some tactical impact relatively fast so that you're allowed to do a bit more discovery if you're not sure. What's being done there is the correct thing. Get also some credibility from people to to be able to say, hey, let's take a step back. Uh, why were we doing this in the first place? Do, do we have more info or data to support this assumption? Can we scope this down a bit and, and so on? So that, that's, I think it's the trickiest part which we try to codify is to show from our people that they, they are competent and trustworthy and, and relatively fast to get up to speed. So, that while we do this, we also get time to think and understand the topic, if it makes sense. Because if you you come in and say, well, we're not sure. And then there are some some agencies that would just sell design sprints or or like this sort of cookie cutter service. I understand why. But sometimes the client is just left because we've also been sometimes in these workshops sold by the other agencies with our interim. And then at the end, everyone feels good, but they're just left with that. And there's again this disconnect between. Delivery or hands on work or the day to day and the cool strategic workshops. So that's why we, we start in uh, getting involved in the day to day as fast as possible because this helps us get a feel for the people and what's happening there compared to what they say hap- it's happening. Because sometimes also the product leaders we talk to don't so much know of what this is. For example, we had a product leader come and say, I have a parental cover. And it's for an app that our staff uses in a few stores. And then my questions were like, okay, how big is the team? What what are the priorities? And they say, well, this is driven by another business unit who runs the, the stores. I don't have much more details aside from that I need someone at this time and potentially better if they get familiarized with, with our companies and way of working through the people that you already have there because they, they wanted to spend less time onboarding. So sometimes we also get quite few details and we try to tease this out a bit (laughs) other uh, or when when the contract gets a bit more serious. And others are very verbose in the details, but more from their perspective, but miss the day-to-day of how the dev team works, of, of how interactions or decisions are made with stakeholders because themselves, they don't know that. It's the people reporting to them that do this and they get sometimes escalations or a so secondhand experience of what's happening there. Yeah. And sometimes that makes them a bit of unreliable narrators um, as <laughs> probably I would also be the same.
0: Everyone's got their own story. But I want you to imagine now that you're a PM going into a new company, wanting to make an impact in your new job. You're going to assume that the company's, onboarding may or may not be any good depending on the company but let's assume that it's going to be at best average and you want to make sure that you land as as well as you can obviously there's lots of things you could do but like what's a general piece of advice or maybe a principle that you would advise that pm to do when they go into that company to help make sure that they can make the best success of their landing
1: one part would be if they can understand in their first days if this is a place that's well organized and has already some established ways of working Or if not, because if not, then they can improvise and do the best of what they decide with their line manager and also the people that will be giving feedback on their onboarding. So sometimes the line manager is less involved and they would work closer with the engineering manager, designer, and potentially two key stakeholders. So then this will contribute quite a lot to the feedback the PM gets and their performance review. My first take would be to understand if there's a discrepancy between what your line manager says, or your main point of contact there, and the other people that you work closely with, Yeah. what are they saying are the priorities? What are they saying that's going to be done? Because sometimes people may also throw you in different directions and clarify that, then understand how well things are run. And then from an operational perspective, just be very speedy at setting up some things. Now, the distinction is that in the well-run places, and especially at scale you can't impact some kpis or you can't even ship some things until maybe a month or so in so you won't be able to make this type of tactical impact in the less organized places you can just get your hands dirty and unblock the team or or do a few things here and there so that that's why i would say it's important to understand how they value work and what is valuable to them and then maybe think from first principles what what's actually happening there what are the goals? What are they doing? How does this fit into the context of, of, of their mission and and their shorter-term goals, which you probably can find out in, in some deck from leadership of what, what they're planning to do <laughs> in the next year or in the next quarter, and then trying to get your hands on what's the mission or the main success criteria for this business unit. How are they running certain things and why? At the same time, while you're trying to get your foot in the door and establishing some ways of working. And I I know this sounds like a lot. Um, (laughs) And and that's why I also cannot really give up prescriptive things because in some companies, it's better that you do things right rather than you do things fast. And in others, it's actually fatal if you don't show very fast impact, even if it's wrong to some degree. Especially smaller companies where... The founders are used to everything happening yesterday and then they would see this pm who's like oh we need to do some well we had this case one of the post-mortems we did this year where one founder requested that we change the client-facing person and the reason was a bit of chemistry and the fact that our pm was pushing back on on the founder (laughs) and it turned out that it was also a misalignment of Who's the actual decision maker there? Because there was a VP of product, but it turns out that one of the founders was very engaged in a certain topic and interested to driving it. And we missed which was the power mover there, because on the other engagement that we had, it was the completely opposite. The VP of product was the one deciding. So that would be something that we thought about it quite a lot what has happened because if we get a request from a client to change the person we have there is not our happiest moment. And we did understand (laughs) it it was just stakeholder management topic that the the person from our team had worked in, uh, in places before where you could push back and it was fine. And you could also take a bit of time, a bit more time to discover and then ship the right thing rather than shipping something fast. And that wasn't appreciated in this other setup. And then we, we solved it by sending someone a bit more senior while charging for the mid-level role. And then everything ended up being successful, but quite a bit of pain from, from our side. For once, let's say if you think about it, it's kind of a ridiculous small thing that sometimes gets blown out of proportion due to just the emotions that are involved in, you know, founders are super attached to their product and. They have a lot of pressure from investors and, and the market. So I, as a founder, I definitely understand how this can happen. And if you feel like the person there is not executing as, as told,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you can get quite upset, especially if that person is a contractor. But it was also a very good learning for us to, to map stakeholders more attentively and look if there's a power dynamic there that we're not familiar of. Despite uh, what probably was the problem that threw us off, despite in the other setups that we had, and we had already a successful engagement there that was renewed, things were the complete opposite.
0: Well, as it turns out, companies are really complicated, but it sounds like if you can at least get to understand a little bit about how decisions are made and who you need to keep close and who you need to tell what to do and who you need to get told what to do by, then maybe you'll have at least some chance of success. But where can people find you after this if they want to talk about Product People? Maybe check out your community or find out more in general about turbocharging their onboarding?
1: I have a Medium article on uh, onboarding. If you Google Blazing Fast onboarding and my name, I think it will show up. Then about the company and community, go to getproductpeople.com and there will be a few links there that point you in the right direction.
0: Well, there you go. And people can come and find out more. Well. I'll put that into the show notes and hopefully you get some eager product people coming to find out more about product people. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really grateful you could spend some of your valuable time. I know how busy you are. So it's great. You could talk to us about how to do onboarding, right? Obviously we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time.
1: Amazing, Jason.
0: Thanks a lot. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to pop over to product.com check out some of my other fantastic guests sign up to the baby list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again i'll be back soon with another inspiring guest but as for now thanks and good night